It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni. The Framers gifted us with perhaps the most powerful tool available to the average citizen, a vote, which is a voice in our constitutional republic. Whatever one's status in the society, the right to vote and be heard is fundamental to who we are. So how do we go about making informed decisions on the ballot from the local to the national stage? On today's show, we will speak with Sarah Grove, professor of political science at Shippensburg University about becoming an informed and engaged voter. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Pete. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with one of the resources you gave me, the League of uh, Women Voters of Pennsylvania. Tell us what we have there. Um, They have released a general election citizen guide to the candidates who are running for office, and it runs all the way up the ballot from the gubernatorial race to the U.S. Senate race, through the U.S. congressional district races, and it is a nonpartisan, comprehensive look at the answers to the questions that were provided by the candidates to the league. Mm -hmm. The league has a long history of doing voter education, and the league is also nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. They are very concerned about the fact that we need to have more individuals be engaged as voters, and their attempts at this are not just for the general election this year, but they will provide a voter guide for the primary elections for both political parties, and they provide voter education guides even in years when we're not dealing with presidential or congressional races. They will have a guide for next year to deal with the races for the judicial elections here in Pennsylvania as well. Mm -hmm. And we're unique in that we elect our judges. Um, We are one of many states that elect judges, Mm -hmm. uh, and we elect them all the way from the Pennsylvania uh, Court of Common Pleas, which is our local trial court, all the way through our appellate courts, including the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So it's important, even if you didn't get to register to vote for this election cycle, next election cycle will be for local elections and will be for judicial elections. And we, as citizens, really should use that opportunity to influence the system. As you said, it is a right that is given to us. And I think from our perspective, at least mine as a political scientist, it's a responsibility that we should take seriously and learn about the candidates and think about how we can go ahead and influence our system. I like your use of the word responsibility. Um, I think it should be framed as such that it's, it's, you know, we talk about patriotism, we talk about, you know, the veterans and respecting, well, this is a lot of what they fought for. And so not voting is irresponsible and in a sense kind of, you know, disrespecting their sacrifice, in my opinion, at least. Well, I think that one of the things when we look back at past elections and we look at other democracies around the world, the United States has a very poor track record in voter turnout. When we look at other industrial democracies, mainly in Western Europe, we're talking turnout rates of 70 to 80 percent. And in the United States, when we're looking at presidential elections, we're roughly hovering in the mid-50s. Many times it has dropped lower than that. And this year's election cycle, we're hopeful that there will be a higher turnout because there's been a lot more interest in the politics, especially at the national level for the Senate race and for congressional races. But turnout really in these mid-year elect, midterm elections low. is low. Mm-hmm. And next year, it will be stunningly low. We, when we look at the races for municipal offices and for judicial offices in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we really see low voter turnout. Mm-hmm. That means that when we're talking about our local government and the place that affects us most deeply, 
we're not seeing citizens participate in those elections. And and in my opinion, I agree with you. I think it's our responsibility. We have that. We need to do that for our community to take mm-hmm. that responsibility and vote for people who are qualified to serve us. Now you're, you, you know, you're bringing up the next generation, and when you talk about you know voting and its importance, I mean, some of those students have got to reflect that body of people that aren't going to vote. Why do you think they choose not to vote? Well, we put a lot of barriers in place to vote in the United States. And I think that we see this in a number of different ways in Pennsylvania. For students, many of them are registered to vote and have registered to vote when they um, got their driver's licenses. And when you get your driver's license, you register to vote typically at your parents' address. And now you've moved. And to get an absentee ballot in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is not the most straightforward, intuitive process. If they want to change their voter registration, it's sometimes difficult to do that. We've made a concerted effort on the Shippensburg campus through an organization, nonpartisan, called Ship Votes, to get students registered and to get them registered to vote in Cumberland County, which is where Shippensburg is mainly housed. Now, is there any opposition to that? Because I know in some states there have been a pretty vehement opposition to giving students who are out of state maybe... <clears throat> the right to vote in that state? Well, we tend to have a lot of in-state residents who are our student body. But one of the things that happens then is when we have election day, the polling places become another challenge for people because you locate them in places where it's difficult for individuals to get if you want to lower your turnout. Mm -hmm. And in Shippensburg, for many years, the polling place was moved away from campus to a a position in the town where there were no sidewalks to walk and it would have been difficult if you had no car to get there. We've had some efforts to move those polling places closer so that we can increase the student Mm -hmm. numbers in terms of their turnout. So let's talk about the absentee ballot. What is it? How does it work? Well, the absentee ballot is for, in Pennsylvania, supposed to be for individuals who are ill or disabled or who will be absent from the municipality where they're registered on Election Day. And to get your absentee ballot, you have to make a request to your county board of elections. And then you need to return your absentee ballot this year um, by November the 2nd. So you actually have to vote before Election Day. So let me stop you there. You have to write a letter, or what, what are we submitting? There's an application okay. to get your absentee okay. ballot, and this year the re- request deadline for absentee ballots is Tuesday, October 30th at 5 p.m., and then the county will send those absentee ballots out to those individuals who've made application, and they will then have to return them by November the 2nd. Okay. So we are one of the few states that also still does not engage in early voting, which um, I think has really started to be a, a phenomenon around the United States where people do not just have to be present on Election Day. They have a window of time, typically two or three weeks before the election, so that they can go to vote. And we're not concerned about this idea of the paper and the application and the process of returning the why, ballot. Why was early voting implemented? In many of the jurisdictions where it was implemented, the desire was to increase voter participation Mm -hmm. and the recognition that as our society has changed and people don't necessarily work where they live, Mm -hmm. I think that that's also an important change. We have a lot of people, and I'll use Chambersburg as an example because that's where we're recording our podcast. Many people here work in Washington, Mm D.C. or in Maryland, and for them to come here on Election Day 
because it becomes difficult. Mm -hmm. They are going to work before the polls open. They're coming home after the polls have closed. And so the idea of early voting kind of took into account around the United States this fact that our lifestyle is different from when we were initially looking at these large numbers of voters. Now, how does that functionally work? How do you early vote? (laughs) Uh, In in most places, you actually go to your county courthouse and you vote there. Uh, We don't use the concept typically of the precincts being set up Mm -hmm. as you would think of an election day, typically here in Pennsylvania. So it is that there's still a need for the voters to appear in person Mm -hmm. rather than electronically. And I think that the idea is that it just gives people a window of time to do it. In some jurisdictions, they do it on Saturdays so that people have the opportunity not to have to leave work in order to go and vote. And is there any special application you have to go through? Um, I'm not certain how it works in each jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. It it has some variability across the different states. Mm And then what about identification requirements for for voters? Where are we in the state of Pennsylvania, at least, on that? Uh, We're in turmoil on that. Um, Right now, if you're a first-time voter, the general requirement is you produce your identification if you're a first-time voter. Mm -hmm. But after that, if you're on the roster and on the rolls, you should not have to present your identification. The whole notion of the voter ID laws is to, again, suppress turnout from some groups that have historically been underrepresented because many people don't don't have a photo ID if you are a lower incomes individual. Mm-hmm. You don't have a driver's license because you don't have a car. Is that not akin to a poll tax? Um, I, I can't say that I draw that parallel completely because most of the time people who are low income could go get a photo ID card and have the fee waived. I would I, I guess the analogy in my mind is more of an obstacle. Oh, well, if you're talking obstacles, we're, we are riddled with obstacles in uh, voting in the United States. And we're seeing even more um, places where we're watching voter suppression come into being because we want to keep certain groups of people out because we believe that there's an identity politics and they identify with one particular party versus another. So we want to keep them out. Right. That's referencing specifically two states, Indiana and Georgia, right now that are undergoing some rather massive efforts. Um, Where are we going with this? Well, um, I'll use the Georgia example um, because the the tone in Georgia is clearly to suppress the African-American vote because the the Democratic candidate is an African-American female, Stacey Abrams. And she is in a very hotly contested race. And if you take away the base of black women, black women will make a difference in this election across the United States. Mm -hmm. And so if you in any way, shape or form start to take away and suppress them as a group, it does give an advantage to the Republicans because black women overwhelmingly identify with the Democratic Party. Stacey Abrams also uh, spearheaded the uh, driver voter registration movement that he's uh, Mr. Kemp is now questioning. The other, I think, thing that's a little unnerving about that situation is he is the Secretary of State, so he's in charge of these exact things while he runs for governor. Um, could the four founding fathers have uh, predicted this? Uh, the founding fathers had a restricted vision of voting, too. And when yes, you go back and you think about their idea of voting, they initially began by only having voting be for people who were property owners, who were white, and who were male. And so as we've changed our rules over the time, and we've seen groups become more engaged, and women are definitely engaged in this cycle, 
there's this desire then to retain power by people who have power. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think we're seeing in Georgia. The Georgia situation is very troubling because I think the idea that you as the Secretary of State are the custodian of the election process raises lots of concerns. Uh, it goes back and reminds me of what went on in Florida in 2000 in the mm -hmm. Bush-Gore um, election as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he should have recused himself from that position, but that's not what's going on. Is there a constitutional right to vote? Uh, the Constitution gives us the right to vote, and it has been expanded over time. So when we talk about removing the barrier based on race, that was the 15th Amendment in 1870. We removed the barrier based on sex then in 1920. And then we expanded the right to vote and lowered the age to 18 um, in the era around the Vietnam War. And so we have constantly expanded it. And then, as you mentioned earlier, we did prohibit the poll tax, which was a way to take poor people, typically African-Americans in the South, out of voting. Mm -hmm. So th we have been very conscious, I think, over our history to think about we're enfranchising people. We're, we're really granting them citizenship when we give them the right to vote because mm -hmm. to, that is one of the most fundamental pieces of being a citizen in a democracy, mm -hmm. is that right to vote. Do you feel with the students that they are engaged and motivated regarding not just national politics, but local politics, state politics? Well, I think they're more engaged probably looking at the national scene because most of the efforts of the media focus on national politics. And we, we definitely drop off in coverage of political events when we get down, moving down to the local level. I can say um, we teach public administration students at Shippensburg, and many of the public administration students are very geared to local politics because they're going to be the people who run for borough council. They're going to be the people who seek jobs in borough and township and uh, offices. So the public administration students have a different emphasis. The general students... The national government dominates their thought process because it dominates the news cycle. Mm -hmm. When we uh, think about getting students engaged, though, one of the other challenges in Pennsylvania, if you just do a quick look at the races for the state house this year, more than a third of them are uncontested. Yeah, yeah. And so it's hard to be engaged when it seems so one-sided. And if you are a person who is not aligned with the party where it's the majority in your legislative district, you sometimes feel a sense of hopelessness. Why should I worry? There's no one there who represents me. Right, right. Well, you can't have any effect if the ticket is going one way no matter what. But we do have a candidate in our district that is presenting uh, opposition to the Republicans. Um, in the congressional race? Mm -hmm. Brent yeah. Ottaway. Mm -hmm. Yes, Brent Ottaway is... Um, uh, we have had Democratic candidates. He appears from all the numbers to be one of the more successful Democratic candidates at this point in the cycle. Mm -hmm. um, it is very challenging in the 13th Congressional District for a Democrat to build up a lot of momentum because the district is heavily Republican. The projections are that the district will be retained by the Republicans when we look at the remainder of Pennsylvania, though, there are many more districts where it's more competitive because of the redrawing of the map mm -hmm. earlier this year by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Let's get into that a little bit because this definitely has an impact. So give us a short history, I guess, if you could, of what happened recently with as far as gerrymandering. Well, the whole idea of gerrymandering historically has been to draw legislative districts to advantage one political party over the other. 
when we expect legislative districts to be drawn, the districts have two principles when you're drawing district maps. You expect districts to be contiguous, and that means connected, and you expect them to be compact, the smallest space possible. And we have not seen that be the case in some states. Pennsylvania is not alone in this. But we were drawing districts to pit candidates against each other in drawing them so that they were sometimes maybe two or three houses wide at a certain point. Right. Very, very narrow. Um, A lot of the challenge for Pennsylvania, to be honest about it, is that our population is not growing as fast as other states. And so what we witness every time we have the census is that Pennsylvania loses house districts. Mm -hmm. And you end up having to redraw the districts so that, and you sometimes have to think about, well, who's going to run against each other? The state legislature has been controlled by the Republicans, and so they have been drawing the maps. And they've been drawing the maps then to advantage Republicans in the United States congressional districts. But to be fair, down in Maryland, the Democrats are doing the same thing. Absolutely. It, it, when you control the legislature, you, it's to your advantage to make certain that your party retains more seats, and not just in your state house, but in your congressional delegation as well. Now, this seems like something that shouldn't be happening, and I mean in the sense of the party in control making these rules. What's the history on that? Well, the idea of who draws your districts is um, an important one historically because we have allowed states control elections Mm -hmm. and states draw the districts for the United States Congress. If you go back prior to the 20th century, we didn't worry about this as much because populations largely were in the areas. They hadn't moved. They had stayed where they were. And we also kept expanding the size of the House of Representatives. So when a new state was added to the union, rather than just completely saying, okay, everyone has to redraw their districts, we added more seats. Mm -hmm. And that finally ended at around 1910, largely because the House chamber in Washington was constructed, and there's not much more space. So we fixed the 435 number for the House in roughly 1910 following the census. And we've had then to redraw those 435 districts then ever after Mm -hmm. because we don't have any more that we're going to create. Is there a better formula for doing that? Oh, I think absolutely there's a better formula. We see places where the maps are being drawn and generated using geographic information system technology Mm -hmm. so that we can meet the desires of the contiguous and the compact. Because Mm -hmm. the whole theory when you draw the district, leaving the partisanship behind, obviously, is that you want a representative to represent just about the same number of people. Right. That's what we're, the goal should be. So if you have a representative who has to represent, let's say, 500,000 people, you need to then draw districts that all represent 500,000 people mm-hmm. that are contiguous and compact. And mm-hmm. you shouldn't be concerned about the partisanship, but that's where we have devolved to over the last mm-hmm. um, 50 to 100 years. Devolve is the right word. I'd like to also now discuss the Electoral College. All right, not a subject for this election, but yes, it's a fair, no, it's a fair question. But it, we're kind of just getting into this whole thing. Let's talk about the, how the Electoral College actually functions. Could you describe that for us? Certainly. The Electoral College was devised in the Constitution to elect the president and vice president of the United States. And the way the Electoral College works is that each state 
has a number of electors that is equal to the number of representatives that they have in the House of Representatives, plus then two for their senators. It's not the representatives and the senators who are the electors. The electors represent individuals who will vote for a specific candidate in the electoral college. So, for example, someone who is a Democratic elector would vote for the Democratic winner in that particular state. Most states use a winner-take-all model. So that means a, the candidate who earns the plurality of the vote gets all of that state's electors. So that is why we see the lopsidedness of the Electoral College, because it is the idea that you win, even if it is by a very slim margin. 80,000 votes in Pennsylvania. Yes, you get all of the state's electors. Mm -hmm. And there are some states that have electors by congressional district, and I think that that's a model that might be appropriate to move to rather than trying to amend the Constitution to remove the Electoral College. That's not going to happen. No, I think that will be very difficult. But if we move to that idea that states would use the congressional district elector model. You win the congressional district, you get the elector. Mm-hmm. More representative. It would be. And it would it would get rid of some of this lopsidedness of the electoral college outcome as being very different from the popular now vote. How, how are the electors chosen? The electors are pledged to particular candidates. And so that's the way they oftentimes are elected office holders, but not the members of Congress, not the senators, but they oftentimes are elected office holders who vote then for their particular party's candidate. Mm-hmm. Okay. It varies from state to state. Mm-hmm. I think the issue that I'm having with the Electoral College is you have states that have very sparse populations, states that have very dense populations. The states that have very dense populations have you know, little to no economies compared to these other giant economies, yet they get the same say. And they, their votes can often negate, you know, a, a vote in Wyoming can often negate up to 30,000 votes in California. And that has, to me, kind of a fundamental un- unfairness to it. Well, the, the real difference comes because of how we count the senators. And the whole theory of the Senate as opposed to the House was that when we were looking at building the country and thinking about creating Congress, we had large states and we had small states back at that time, too. Mm-hmm. And the large states wanted everything based on population. Of course. And that was the plan that was advanced by Virginia at the Constitutional Convention. And the small states, New Jersey was the most powerful of the small states then. And New Jersey advocated, hey, wait a minute, we need to have a balance. And they were the ones who drove the model at the Constitutional Convention for the Senate. Mm -hmm. So back then, while Virginia was a large state, The framers never had a vision of a large state like California is today. And when you start to look at this dynamic then, those two Senate votes in the Electoral College really do shift the balance of power because it makes those small states, even though they may only have three electoral votes like Montana, it does give those citizens in Montana disproportionate influence through those electoral votes. Well, yeah, and the converse to my argument is that candidates would fly from one coast to the other and the the densely the sparsely populated people wouldn't be heard from they wouldn't be spoken to no and i think that that's the challenge right now because for candidates the 10 largest states are divided between red and blue mm-hmm. and if they would all lean one direction 
a candidate for president would have no incentive to visit the others. Mm -hmm. But when you take a look at California and New York, they're historically been blue. And then you take a look at Texas, and it has historically been red. And you start to then look at some of the other states, and you go, okay, you kind of go back and forth. But we do tend to have that dynamic that the large states are split now. If they would ever trend together, I think it would make a big difference and people would be more uh, outraged at the electoral college outcome. Yeah, well, one side of the aisle is always going to be mad, so... That's right. Um, <laughs> there's In the way American politics is constructed, there is always a winner and a loser. Yeah, yeah. Um, the democratic demo, uh, demographic shifts that we're hearing about, uh, do you think these are real as far as what young people are thinking and how they're voting and how the country is changing? Becoming less white, I guess, is just the way to say it. Well, the demographics are real there. The country will be less white majority very shortly. And I think that if you... I will say you won't be in the majority population-wise, but the power structure still favors whites. And the idea of privilege is really still very important. And when you start to think about empowering communities of color to be involved, we start to see some of this, and then you see the backlash. As we were talking earlier in the podcast about the uh, events in Georgia, we just start to see this idea that here you have a very credible, strong black woman candidate in Stacey Abrams, and the whole idea is we really want to start now to suppress the votes because we're worried that black women are going to take control of that and this office. And take, this takes us to 2013 when the Supreme Court basically took away the voting rights, the Voting Rights Act, which was, t- talk about that a little bit because it really allowed Georgia to do what they're doing now. Yes, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had protected against voter suppression in states that had a history of discriminating based on race in the South. And so when the Supreme Court rendered its decision in 2013, it removed those protections. And and as you said, it has emboldened states to take these steps now to support to suppress voters. Mm-hmm. And to quote uh, what Chief Justice Roberts said, quote, racial discrimination in voting had been greatly reduced, and therefore it was time to gut the Voting Rights Act. Yes, and I think that there were some dissenters there who disagreed with Chief Justice Roberts in the that particular decision. Can you allow me to quote uh, yes, Ruth I will. Bader Ginsburg in her dissent? Uh, she said, destroying the Voting Rights Act because it had succeeded in limiting discrimination was, quote, like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. So there's her dissent on that. But that did kind of open the door. It did. And I think that what we're going to watch now is how people respond to what is going on and what's, what it, what's the conversation that comes out of these states that are engaging in voter suppression. Mm-hmm. And will there be, an, if we see the turnout in Georgia in particular, being suppressed, what's going to be the consequence of that? Mm -hmm. Um, I really think that that's the race to watch as a harbinger of how things go forward, not only for women candidates, for African Americans, but also then for this whole notion of participation. I know um, I have a very good friend who's working on Stacey's campaign in Georgia, and she is really, they they are on it. 
Mm-hmm. They are they are recruiting people through social media. They were out this morning talking about where are you seeing the voter suppression reported so we have it in the public on social media mm-hmm. so that we start to then to kind of counteract it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's um, circle back to some of these other resources um, mm-hmm. that we could get out to the people because you sent me some other URLs and I looked them up and they were powerful databases uh, full of information. Absolutely. I I included a couple other URLs for you, and one of them is Project Vote Smart. And Project Vote Smart has been around. It is also nonpartisan, and it catalogs not only politicians and their races, but it catalogs um, campaign gifts. And you can start to track some of the money because money is flowing into these races. Mm -hmm. So Project Vote Smart has been around a long time, and they... um, they have they track interest groups as well, mm-hmm. not just individuals and how they're trying to influence the system. When I looked in preparation for this podcast, they're reporting that over the cycle that they're looking at, they have a, quite a long history, we've seen $19 billion in campaign gifts wow. that they're tracking. So money is flowing, and we really have to be kind of aware of how much money is going into these races and where the money's coming from. One of the other websites I shared with you is the URL for um, OpenSecrets.org. And OpenSecrets tracks campaign finance, typically for federal candidates. It's very interesting because you can look and categorize the industries where the money is flowing in. And the money is hard money and soft money. And the distinction there is hard money is the real campaign dollars going in, contributions. Soft money is money that supports activities like get out the vote oftentimes to political parties. Mm -hmm. But we have no idea about this idea of dark money that's out there and all this money that's being spent to try to influence elections that we don't have requirements to track. Yeah, and if you want to learn about dark money, uh, Jane Mayer wrote an amazing book uh, about how this works. And it's it's not really that affirming to read. <laughs> no, and and I think that um, you you had mentioned the Supreme Court's role in you know the Voter Rights Act in 2013. You have to look back to what the Supreme Court did in Citizens United in 2010, yeah. and how it changed the landscape for contributions, in particular taking away some of those limits on corporations and labor unions. And now we're watching that money flow into these elections and that and the money is coming in labor unions historically have been more supportive of democratic candidates and large corporations have historically been more supportive of republicans mm-hmm. so you're just watching this battle now and the money that is flowing is is staggering yeah it is we're in a strange time in our republic right now we are but i would urge everyone you know get out and vote vote locally don't be blinded by the national spotlight. What happens locally is is going to impact you more directly. Absolutely. And not only about getting out and voting in local races, but take the time and go to a public meeting that's being held in your community to find out what issues are being discussed. If you live in Chambersburg, the borough council really welcomes people to come and they are debating things that impact your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for people to show up and think about being engaged in that way as well. Well, they're spending your money. Absolutely. <laughs> well, listen, that's all the time we have for today. But I want to thank you again so much for coming. This has been a really fun conversation. And I personally have learned a lot. Um, is there anything you want to promote? I would just promote Get Out to Vote this year. Get Out to Vote every year and build yourself 
um, into a powerful citizenry. That's what's really important. Awesome. But thank, thank you, Pete. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.